Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. Well, good morning. How are we doing? We good? All right. So one of my favorite uh, traditions about Christmas is drinking some of this, some eggnog. It's, it's one of my favorite traditions to do every year. It's one of my favorite memories. I remember the first time my dad gave me some of this, and it just like revolutionized my life. Uh, fans of eggnog, any fans of eggnog in the house? All right, do we have any not fans of eggnog in the house? All right. Wow, that's disappointing. Um, but uh, one of the best names I heard eggnog called this Christmas season was spiked custard mucus. Spiked custard mucus. That's a, maybe a fitting description, but this isn't spiked. Uh, do you mind if I pour myself a little heaping helping of eggnog here? Frothy, eggy, nutmeggy, goodness. Look at that, you guys. It's a nice cup of eggnog. So I filled it to the uh, midway point here. Uh, do you mind if I take a step? Is that cool? We good? Okay. Mmm. Just now realizing this may not be the best thing to drink when you're speaking. It's not um, necessarily hydrating. Anyways, um, so I filled it to the midway point. So you would say that this is filled, or it's half, or half. Who wanted to say full? Who said full? Who wanted to say empty but was afraid of the public shame? Some of you? Yeah, I would be with you. There's a couple of hands raised. I appreciate that. And the rest of you are, you know, maybe afraid of raising your hand there. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, this is a silly excuse for me to drink some eggnog this morning, uh, but this is kind of a little uh, thought experiment to determine personality type. So if you were one of the ones that said this was half full, you would be called an optimist, an optimist, not optimist, that's a transformer, optimist, and his uh, mother-in-law, Pessimist Prime, um, but optimist, and so you would look at the uh, same set of facts as everyone else, and you would see um, kind of the bright, the good and everything, and you see that things are trending forward and they're most likely going to work out for the benefit of all. And if that's you, then you would be considered an optimist. And I realize that this is kind of painting things in broad generalities. But if you saw that and you said that that was half empty, you are a pessimist. You look at the same set of circumstances and you see that things may be much more complex than everyone else realizes and they're most likely not going to improve. In fact, they may go worse um, for everyone and particularly for yourself, the pessimists. Now, I realize that some people are kind of mixes of both, but what's interesting about this time of year is that the uh, Christmas season uh, tends to kind of accentuate our personality types toward optimism or pessimism. So some of you love the Christmas season, some of you love the festivities, uh, time with your family, the friends, the movies, uh, the eggnog, and um, this time of the year accentuates that characteristic. Other of you, others of you, um, you know, you don't love this time 
of the year. And it accentuates our pessimism as we kind of see through the season. And we see that it's kind of superficial and it's all about spending money and buying gifts and meaning that you have to spend time with your family that maybe you don't want to spend time with. Today we're going to be looking at probably the most famous Old Testament Christmas passage. And it raises a question for us to consider today. And the question for us this morning is this. As a follower of Jesus... What is the mindset that we should adopt? As a follower of Jesus, what's the most consistent mindset that we should have or mindset that's most consistent with being a follower of Christ? Is it optimism or is it pessimism? What do you think? You can say it. Yeah, there's not so much certainty in the room with that answer. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not simple because, you know, we have to realize that like, Pessimism, ultimate pessimism, is off the table. There are horrible things that happen in life, but our core, our core confession as a community of faith is that we worship a God who at this time of the year we celebrate the fact that he came among us to identify with us, to participate in our suffering, to absorb the pain of sin on the cross and conquer death through the resurrection. So ultimate pessimism, it would seem, is off the table. But I would argue that optimism should be off the table as well, because optimism is naive. If we explore what the scriptures say about the depth of the brokenness of human, our human condition, we realize that optimism is a bit naive when we look at the broad landscape of history, and not just what the scriptures say, but what history says. If you're over 19 years old, you were born in the 1900s, and congratulations, you were born in the bloodiest, most murderous century in the history of the world. That's our legacy as 20th century children. And I was reminded yesterday that seven years ago uh, was Sandy Hook, where some young man believed lies about deep lies about himself and about other people. And because of that, he gave in to hate and he took the lives of 26 people. And this kind of thing just happens. This level of evil just erupts in our world and it doesn't seem to be getting getting better. So optimism is naive. Pessimism is off of the table because of the resurrection and the reality of the good news. So the passage we're going to explore today kind of offers us a third way that takes into account the realities of both. What we're going to look at today is this idea of biblical hope. Biblical hope. So as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, we're not optimistic, we're not pessimistic, but we are people, we are persons of hope. And hope is different than optimism. And I was reminded of this in a, in a Rolling Stone article that I read with a man named Dr. Cornell West. Dr. Cornell West, you can see the quote here. Uh, mainly I wanted to put him on screen because his hair is amazing. His hair is amazing. But he's a, he's a brilliant man. He has a PhD from Princeton. He's a professor emeritus there. He teaches at Harvard and just an incredible man. But this quote struck me about what the difference between optimism and pessimism is. He says, hope and optimism are different. Optimism tends to be based on the notion that there is enough evidence out there to believe things are going to be better. It is much more rational and deeply secular. Whereas hope looks at the evidence and says, it doesn't look good at all, but I'm going to make a leap of faith. I'm going to go beyond the evidence to dream of new possibilities. Hope is based on visions that become contagious enough to allow us to engage in heroic actions against all odds with no guarantees. That's hope. I'm a prisoner of hope. Now, we might quibble with a few things, and I might quibble with a few things 
uh, that Dr. West had to say here. But what struck me was his uh, defining optimism as rational and deeply secular. And uh, optimism is different than Christian hope because Christian hope is based on faith. And Christian hope resonates with the message of the scripture because optimism, it seems, is based on our circumstances where you can look at our circumstances and see that the evidence is kind of trending in a direction where things are going to work out. And that's fine if that's your case, but what do you do when there is no evidence that things are going to get better? Or what do you do when the evidence is actually pointing in the opposite direction? Where are you then? What are you left with? And that's where a profound and robust understanding and definition of Christian hope comes into play. And we realize that biblical hope is different than optimism because it can stand on its own two legs because it's not based on circumstances. Instead, biblical hope, what it does is it offers us a vision that keeps our mind alert, keeps our hearts attuned to what God is doing in the world. And it has nothing to do with how my life is going. It has nothing to do with how the world is going. And that is the kind of hope that we need. That is the kind of hope that I believe the world needs, especially at this time of year. And that is the kind of hope that is explored in the passage we're going to be in today. So we're going to be back in Isaiah chapter 9. So I'll give you a minute to find that in your Bibles. It's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament or flip it to it on your devices. Isaiah chapter 9, and it'll give me time to pause and take another sip here of eggnog. Ah, that's good stuff. All right. Isaiah 9, verse 1. The words will be on the screen. But there will be no gloom for the one that was in anguish. anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All good? Is it all clear? We good to go? We pack it up and go home from there? You're like, no, no, it's not clear at all. What, 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 is, what is this? We're talking about like former times and latter times, and there's this thing called Zebulun. What is a Zebulun? Who would name their child Zebulun? This is just like bizarre. Well, welcome to reading the ancient Hebrew prophets. Whenever you read the prophets, you're kind of thrown into the midst of these storylines and into poetry that leaves you asking these questions like who, what, when, where is going on here? So, Let's explore a little bit of the who, the what, and the when. So uh, we're looking in this book of uh, prophecy, this book of poetry, connected to what prophet? It's on the screen. Isaiah, that's right. Isaiah. And Isaiah kind of arrives on the scene halfway through the kingdom period in ancient Israel, the kingdom period. So the ancient Israel and the ancient Hebrew text, it kind of divides their history, their timeline up in different periods. This is the kingdom period. So he's kind of like right in the middle of the kingdom period. He um, comes after, who knows the second king of Israel, like the second and most famous king in the history of Israel? David, that's right, David. So Isaiah is about 250 years after David. And he is on the scene at a very, very dark moment in the history of Israel. Because after David, there were a handful of good kings, but the majority of the kings um, were bad. They had abandoned the covenant that they had made with Yahweh, with God, a covenant where God made a promise to them and the nation, his children, made a promise back to him. Uh, They began to worship other gods. The kings and the people uh, began to allow the same injustices that God had rescued them out of Egypt in the Exodus. They began to allow those exact same things to happen in Israel, the neglect of the poor, the very things that they promised God on Mount Sinai with Moses that they wouldn't do they were doing. 
So Isaiah's role as a prophet was to come among these people to kind of be a mouthpiece of God to the people and to warn them, to remind them of the past, to remind them of God's faithfulness in the past, remind them of the covenant they had made with God in the past, and also to warn them about the future, to remind them of the past and warn them about the future, that if they continue to go in this direction, that Yahweh, that God would give them over to the consequences of their poor decision. And in Isaiah's day, these decisions that they were making, uh, the injustice and the neglect of the poor and worshiping other gods, the idolatry that they were engaged in, was steamrolling them right into the teeth of the big bad empire of that era of the world at that time. Who knows what the big bad empire during Isaiah's day, what was it? That's a tricky question. I shouldn't have done that to you guys. Sorry, that was hard. That's like deep dig Bible trivia. Assyria. Assyria is the big bad empire of Elijah's day. And so verse 1, he says, hey, um, there's this darkness coming. There's this gloom coming in the lands of Zebulun, Naphtali, and the Galilee. You can see here the map of uh, Israel uh, during Isaiah's day. I'm sorry for like the Microsoft Paint version of a map here, but it's the best that I could find. And so you see there, you see Zebulun, you see Naphtali, you see that little body of water there, the Sea of Galilee, that whole northern region of Israel was called the Galilee. And Isaiah is warning them that if they continue to act in this way, that God is going to give over all of that land that he promised to them to someone, and that someone ends up being Assyria. But what event is he talking about? What event is Isaiah warning the nation of Israel about. The event is an event that actually happens in Isaiah's lifetime. We find it in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. This event actually comes into fruition as he foretold or prophesied. It says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, what his parents were thinking when he, they named him that, I have no idea. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came, from, came and captured Leon, um, Abel, Bet, Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So do some of those names and places ring a bell with what we just read and what we just saw on the map? Yes, we see, we see Galilee, we see Naphtali, we see Zebulun, we see those regions that Isaiah warned the nation about being given over to the evil empire of Assyria. So the king of Assyria sweeps in with his army, he conquers Israel, he annexes that area, and he deports everyone out of Israel, out from their homeland. So it's kind of like if Canada, for some reason, got aggressive and they wanted to expand, <laughs> we, we laugh, I don't know what's funny, it's just the thought of a Canadian getting aggressive. Uh, but they, they get mad and they want to expand their maple syrup empire. And they're like, hey, let's go south and take over those guys. That's kind of what happens. So the Assyrian army sweeps in, they conquer, they deport. And the, this invasion that the scripture is talking about here of Assyria is um, what wiped out most of the tribes of Israel to this very day. It's akin to the Holocaust, what happened to the Jews in Europe in the 1930s and the 1940s. This is one of the most tragic events in the history of this nation. So he's talking about the former times. This prophecy comes, to ha- comes into fruition and it happens. Israel, excuse me, Israel is conquered. They're deported. Lives are taken. Lives are lost. Families are split apart. So there's this former time, but is that the end of the story? No, because he foretells of this latter time as well. He says in the former time, he brought in contempt, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious that same area 
of Israel, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. So Isaiah foresees this impending devastation, this impending doom that is coming toward Israel, but that's not the final word. word. When we deal with the God of the Bible, evil and sin never gets the final word. God's purpose to bless, God's purpose to save, God's purpose to restore always gets the last word. So these latter times, how is this going to happen and when is this going to happen? In verse 2 of Isaiah 9, he says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So the Assyrian Empire sweeps in, they invade And for Israel, it's like someone turned the lights off, and they're left in the dark. And they're wondering, where is God? Where's my hope? What about the promises that God made to us at Mount Sinai? And Israel says, yes, or um, Isaiah says, yes, it's like the lights have been turned off, but that's not the end, that there's this bright light that's coming. So what is it? What is this bright light? When will it happen? What's it going to be like when God turns the lights back on again? And this is where Isaiah kind of comes into his own as a poet, and these metaphors and this language begin to roll out in this, and unfold in this beautiful way. So he begins to tell us, what's it going to look like when God turns the lights back on again? In verse 3, he says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So he uses this language and this imagery of the harvest that they all would have been familiar with. He said, it's going to be like when we rejoice at the harvest where you've, you've worked, you've spent a season working and, and watering and weeding and waiting. And there's a lot of W's. I didn't realize so I just said it. Working, watering, weeding, waiting. Anyway. Um, and you've exercised patience and patience and you've wondered, is my work going to pay off? Is my patience going to pay off? And then the, you see the first fruit begin to sprout from the ground and you realize that there is hope on the horizon. And then it all comes to harvest and you all rejoice and you celebrate the, the spoils as he talks about here. And then he goes on in verse 4 and says, For the yoke of his burden, whose burden? Israel's burden. And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He uses this image of a a yoke, and you can see here on the screen uh, what a yoke is. It's this kind of U-shaped or W-shaped piece of wood that would connect two oxen, and they would connect that to a plow. And if the oxen tried to fight against the, the person, their master driving them, it, would, it causes them great pain. In ancient Israel, a yoke is a symbol of slavery. It's a symbol of oppression for Israel. It was a symbol of them being treated like animals under the thumb of the Assyrian empire. And then he says, we'll be broken as on the day of Midian. And you're like, yeah, Midian, I know, I know all about Midian. Well, Midian is kind of a really cool story that happened in ancient Israel where 300 Israelites were facing tens of thousands of Midianites and they defeated this massive army with clay pots and torches. It was amazing and incredibly surprising. And it shows you and gives you a little bit of an insight into where this poem, where this prophecy is leading, this incredibly creative way that God conquered uh, against all odds this Midian army, he's going to do the same thing again. He goes on in verse 5 to say this, For every boot of the tramping warrior is battle in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
He's saying all the signs of your oppression, all the signs of your slavery will be destroyed and that will all be used to fuel the fire for this great light that will shine on you one day. And if you're type A, you're listening to this saying, wow, this is beautiful, the poetry is amazing, but what does it actually mean? What is he trying to get at here? Then he goes on in verse six to say this, and probably a lot of us have this on a magnet or on a coffee cup. We read it this time of year, almost every year. He says, well, this is what it's gonna be. This is what I'm getting at. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called. So he says this child is coming, this child is going to be born, and this birth of this child is going to be Yahweh turning, God turning the lights back on. God's turning the lights back on, and this new era, this new kingdom will begin. And he says his name will be called, in the ancient Hebrew world, world, world names um, were used to symbolize something. They weren't just used to be creative or just to pass on a family name. The names symbolized what a person was called to do or what their destiny would be. Um, whenever Moses meets with God on uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, God gives Moses his message to take back to the Israelites, and he says, well, who, who should I tell them sent me? And this is the first time that God tells Moses and the Israelites of his name, Yahweh. And he begins to explain what Yahweh is, what his name is. He says, the Lord who is compassionate, who is gracious, who is slow to anger. This is my name because this is who I am. This is how I act. This is what I'm called to do. This is my destiny as your God. So as Isaiah begins to explain the name of this child, this is more than a name. This is what he is going to do for the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We've talked about those two titles the last few weeks, and you can go check that out on the podcast or on our website. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Uh, Peace is probably a Hebrew word that you're familiar with. Does anybody know the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom, that's right. Peace is shalom. And peace is a a good translation. It gets us about halfway there. um, Peace is the absence of conflict. And we'll be talking about what the Prince of Peace is next week. But today I want to look for a second at this everlasting father. Everlasting father. Um, Everlasting father is the combination of two Hebrew words. It's ad and abi. And you say it, uh, abiad. Everyone say abiad. Abiad is the name everlasting father. And we're not meant to conflate this everlasting father with who this child would be with God uh, the Father. Uh, This child that is coming, who we know to be Jesus, is the physical incarnation of God. He is the physical representation of God's character, meaning he will act like God the Father acts toward us, toward his people. Um, In in this father language in the ancient Hebrew world, It was very common Uh, when someone was the first in a tribe or the first in a nation, they would be called the father of that family, the father of that tribe, or the father of that nation. Abraham uh, was the father of the Israel people, the Israeli uh, people, because he was the founder of that nation. 
Moving on uh, in the timeline beyond Christ, a guy named Paul shows up on the scene, and he has this group of disciples who he is caring for, and there's this church in Corinth that he's writing and encouraging, and he says in 1 Corinthians 4.15, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel, because he was their first discipler, first mentor in their life, and so he was kind of a representative father figure for them. So this child is going to be like a father, like an everlasting father. Uh, What this signifies is that he's going to be the father of this new and eternal age. Um, Most of the early earliest translations of the Hebrew and Greek Bible going back to the 5th century actually translate this not as everlasting father, but as father of eternity or father of a coming age. So this is going to be a different kind of father. This father, this everlasting father, is going to usher in a new era that would never end. A new era that would never end. And be unlike any other era in their history. And just a few years later, Israel will find themselves back in this very situation where the Babylonian Empire sweeps in and conquers them in a very similar way that the Assyrian Empire did. But he's saying that this child that will be given to you will be an everlasting father. He will be your everlasting king. And his era will never end end. Uh, Kings in the ancient Hebrew world referred to themselves, especially if they were good kings, if they were kind kings, as father to their people, people, kings that would protect them against foreign enemies. So this this child would be fatherly in the sense that he would care and he would protect for eternity without fail. This era and this kingdom would never end. He will be their protector forever. Israel had many good kings like King David, but they were always left wondering near the end of that king's life, who's next and what are they going to be like? Because time and again, they were failed with a good king followed by a cruel king, a semi-faithful king followed by a wicked king. And what the Hebrew prophet Isaiah is saying here is that this new king, this everlasting father, will have a kingdom and will preside over an era that will never end And you will never be left wondering, well, this is great, but what's next? That this is his plan for all of eternity. (laughs) Sorry here. All right, there we go. Sorry, a little technical difficulties there. And then he goes on in verse 7, Isaiah 9, 7. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end on the throne of David. Uh, So this king, this child will be a descendant of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal or the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this story and this poetry begins to like build and build and build to this big crescendo at the end and saying that the government will be on his shoulder. It will have no end and the passion of God, your creator, will sustain this forever. This is what it's going to look like when God turns the lights back on. You're going to be given over to your consequences, to the consequences of your poor decisions, of your sin, of your injustice, and of your neglect, but it's not going to be forever that God is going to restore because there was no room for optimism in Isaiah's day. But Isaiah sets out this bright picture of hope, this bright vision of hope for the future that's nothing to do with their current circumstances. He says, but Yahweh is going to promise, or Yahweh is promising to send a deliverer, this everlasting father. And that was a word of hope for them 
in that day. So pessimism ultimately is off the table. It was off the table for the ancient Hebrew people. There was no room for optimism in Isaiah's day. So all they had was this message of hope. So we are a um, people of Jesus whose core confession is that all of the ancient scriptures, specifically all of the ancient prophecies, are pointing forward to and meeting their end in Jesus. Our confession is that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, this Jesus of Nazareth. And the New Testament Gospels actually make this very clear. The Gospel of Matthew is Matthew's account of the story of Jesus. And each Gospel had, each, there were the four Gospels, and each had kind of a specific audience that they were writing to. And Matthew's audience was specifically and intentionally Jewish. And he makes this incredibly clear who this child will be and what it's going to look like when God turns the lights back on. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Hmm. So as a Jewish person in the ancient world who was steeped in the ancient Hebrew text, you'd be left going, wow, whoa. Like he's putting it all together. This man, this rabbi from Nazareth, goes back to this very region, the Galilee, to Naphtali, to Zebulun, and begins preaching this message of hope. And then Matthew makes it overtly clear in the next verse. He says, he goes back to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So what is the light? What is this light that has dawned when Yahweh turns the lights back on? He says, from that time on, Jesus began preaching, repent or turn for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's saying the rain the rule of Israel God, Israel's God is here, and it has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. So Matthew connects the dots for us. Jesus returns to this region that was taken out by Assyria to fulfill the words that the prophet Isaiah had shared hundreds of years before. It's a fulfillment of the promise that God made that he would honor this region and use it as a staging ground for this bursting of hope, this bright light that would come, this king that would rescue their people, this everlasting father. And I think this text in Matthew and the text in Isaiah, it gives us this unique insight into what is biblical hope. What is biblical hope? Um, Does anyone know how long it is from Isaiah, when Isaiah penned the words of Isaiah chapter 9, to the arrival of Jesus? Yeah, Roughly 700 years. 700 years from the time that Isaiah wrote Isaiah 9 to when Jesus is returning to this region in the Galilee. So we read Isaiah 9 and we're like, wow, he's talking about these current events that are happening in his very day. And then in the next breath, he's talking about these events that would come in the future, you know. And again, welcome to reading the ancient Hebrew prophets. And so how do we connect the dots here? How do we understand what it must have been like for the ancient Israelites who were in that moment? And what insight does this give us for understanding biblical hope? So I want to draw a little picture here for us today that might give us some insight into what um, Isaiah is getting at here. So we'll draw um, Isaiah here. And um, there we go. I'm a great artist. Let's see. 
And he's a Bible guy, so he has a beard. He could also be a barista on South Congress somewhere. He kind of looks sassy, doesn't he? He has his hand on his hip and the other hand, like disco or something. I don't know. Sorry. So there's Isaiah. And um, he's kind of perplexed there. So he's standing here. And then he's standing in front of this kind of like beautiful mountain scene. So he's in front of these foothills, kind of in this valley area. And in the back, there's this kind of big snow-capped excuse me, mountain there. So from this perspective here, is Isaiah, or are the people of Israel, imagine Israel gathered around him as they're standing in this valley looking at these foothills with this giant mountain in the background. Can they precisely tell the difference from this foothill to that foothill, or from that foothill to that mountain? What are your thoughts? Would that be an easy task to do? You know, it's very difficult when you're looking at kind of the, the broad landscape to discern the precise distances between these hills and this mountain. So this is kind of exactly what's happening in Isaiah's day. Is right on the foreground in front of them is this kind of like, you know, comic book, well, that's terrible, uh, pow, this Assyrian empire sweeps in. And they're going to overthrow the Israeli people, and they're going to exile them. They're going to annex them out of Israel to the Assyrian Empire, and they're going to wipe some of these tribes off of the map here. But Isaiah shares in Isaiah 9 that don't worry because there's this coming king represented by this mountain here. So he sees in the foreground the disaster that's happening. In the background, there's this king that has been promised to him. Now, does, from this illustration, are they able to tell that the king comes after the events in their immediate foreground? Yes. But precisely how long after these events are they able to tell? Right, that's not the purpose of Isaiah chapter 9. The purpose is not to give us a timeline of how these events are going to happen. The purpose and the point of this, this passage is to tell us about God's character, that God's promises can be trusted. That God's promises can be trusted in spite of current circumstances where there was no room for optimism in their present moment, only hope in God's character. But let's look at it a different way here. Let's see if we can turn that over. What if we looked at it from this perspective? So we have Isaiah here and the Israelites. We've got the mountains here, the little foothills in front of him. And then we have the big giant snow-capped mountain back here. Is that a little bit of a different vantage point? So we know that devastation is in their immediate future with Assyria. We know that the king is coming Here, and we, with the hindsight of history, know that it's about 700 years between these two events. But the point of Scripture is not to tell us exactly and to lay out a linear timeline of what's going to happen, because looking at history that way doesn't require the same level of faith or the same level of trust as this other picture does. For Isaiah and for Israel, this is what they're left left with. So it raises the question, what is the nature of biblical hope? Biblical hope is about trusting God's promises, but it's also, biblical hope is also about trusting God's freedom and God's creativity for how he'll do it. 
is knowing that on the horizon, at some day, this child, this everlasting father is coming, but we don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know when he's going to arrive. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And this is not easy. This is not an easy way to live. And that's what the Psalms are all about. You can read the Psalms as the Israelites lament the situation that they're in, and they're beating on God's chest saying, God, how long? How long do we have to wait in the midst of our despair? God's turned the lights off, and they're wondering where he is. But God's trying to say that you can believe in my promises. You can have hope in my promises. Biblical hope offers us a yes, that God will fulfill what he has promised. But it puts us in a position where we cannot presume to tell God how to fulfill and what the timeline should look like. And that timeline is incredibly difficult to swallow, especially when there's no reason for optimism in our present moment. This timeline gets even more difficult when we look at Isaiah chapter 9 and what Isaiah said this king was going to be like. And the question we're left with is, did Jesus fulfill this prophecy in any sort of straightforward way? Any sort of straightforward, overt, clear, direct way. He spoke of this kingdom that would be marked by justice and by peace, and that would be forevermore, and there would be the end of wars, no more war, no more oppression, no more slavery. Did that happen? No, it didn't happen. And what was scandalous about Jesus was that he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be this child spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9, but he didn't fit the expectations of the people. He didn't fit the mold that they had developed for what the Messiah would look like. Isaiah chapter 9 says that he's going to break the yoke of the oppressor. Who was the oppressor in the day of Jesus? It was the Roman Empire. Did Jesus break the yoke of the Roman Empire? No, he didn't. So Jesus travels He brings this message of hope. He invites tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes into this community of the forgiven. He announces this kingdom that is coming, this kingdom that has come, and the people are left confused, saying this doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Did Jesus ever take the government upon his shoulder? In a certain way, he did. He took the Roman execution rack on his shoulder. And the climactic point of every single one of the Gospels is where Jesus is recognized as a king. He was given a robe. He was given a crown. And he was lifted up. As John said, he would be lifted up. It was the language of exaltation and enthronement. But it doesn't make sense because it didn't look like what they thought it was going to look like. That he gave up his life so that he could win. So this timeline is not only surprising, but so is the way in which he accomplished some of these prophecies, and so is the way that we're sitting here today, still waiting for some of these to be fulfilled. This kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where Jesus, this child, wins by losing, who brings life by giving his own. So this is true in the broad sweep of history, that biblical hope is about trusting in God's promises, but also trusting in God's creativity and freedom to fulfill these promises in kind of surprising and unexpected ways. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us this morning as an individual and as a community of Christ? Uh, The Christmas season, as Taylor said earlier, 
is really difficult for many. Um, for us, and for some of us, we feel like Isaiah in this picture, where we're left in the valley wondering, where is God? God's turned the lights off in your life, and you're wondering, where is God? Where are the promises that God has promised me? And you're wondering in darkness. And it might be a difficult season because your earthly father has made it hard to believe in this everlasting father idea. And for some of you, you'd say, well, if this everlasting father is in any way going to resemble my earthly father, that's a promise that I don't want fulfilled. Because your earthly father hurt more than they helped. Maybe they hit instead of hugged. Maybe they were gone. They were absent from your life when all you needed was their presence and for them to be there. And there's others of you who love this time of the year, who love the season. You love family. You love eggnog. And that's great. Accept that as a gift. What it tells us is that whether our circumstances are awesome or whether our circumstances are awful, biblical hope can stand on its own two legs regardless of life's circumstances. It's not optimism because it's not based on our circumstances. We know that ultimate pessimism is off, off the table. So we might be in that valley, valley like Isaiah, wondering where is God? Is he going to fulfill the promises in my life? And this is the paradox of the story. This is the power of the story because this is where God meets us. The cross that we sang about earlier is Jesus going into the valley with us. Jesus experiencing the absence of God, God's presence. The cross is where it seemed like God turned the lights off. That left Jesus asking the question, my father, why have you forsaken me? This is the paradox of the cross. That Jesus meets us in our valley of darkness, in our valley of wondering, where we're waiting for God to turn the lights back on. And biblical hope tells us that he will. That he will turn the the lights back on. But God's promises also tell us that it might take place in a time and in a way that we didn't predict. How many of us need that word of hope this season to make it through the next few weeks and into 2020? That's precisely the type of hope that's offered in Isaiah chapter 9. So after Jesus, I referenced this man named Paul that becomes a follower of Jesus. He shows up and he's writing to this group of believers in um, Corinth, and he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but as what is, what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul here is reiterating this concept of biblical hope that was offered by Isaiah, saying that it's not about optimism that's found in the things that we can see in this temporary moment, but it's about what's eternal, what's unseen, and that is the nature of biblical hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word of hope this morning. We thank you that in spite of whatever we're going through in our life, in spite of whatever our circumstances are telling us, that God, you are a God of promise and you are a God 
that can offer hope. Even in our darkest moments, even when it seems like you've turned the lights off and we're left wondering, where is God? Where are you? Are you going to show up? Are you going to intervene in my situation? God, I pray for those who are here today that need to hear this word of hope, that need this encouragement to know that you are a God who honors his promises. But sometimes those promises take shape in a way that surprises us. That God, we are not to be discouraged by that, but that we are to have hope, that we are to to have our trust deeply rooted in your character and who you are and in this community that you've given us. So Father, fix our eyes on that this morning as we leave. In your name we pray, amen.